Father, we rejoice in the truth we just sang. Jesus has paid it all. And all of us belong to him because of that. He's washed us and cleansed us and given us new life. We put our trust in him. And he's given us his word. You've given us your word that is all about Jesus. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth today. I pray, Father, that through my voice, they would hear your voice clearly. Through your word, we would hear your truth powerfully and find where we need help the most in terms of living out the life that you've entrusted to us, the life that you have rescued us into through Jesus. Grant us your grace and your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've taken time in our series on the book of Exodus, Free to Be God's People, to um, dwell on the Ten Commandments. And, and the reason that God gave them the Ten Commandments was not just that he, for the fun of it, but because he had called them to be his people, his holy people, a holy nation, and to be his special possession. And so the Ten Commandments were, were like the Constitution. This is how you live as my holy people, as my special possession. So how is Israel to do that? And uh, so we're, we've seen that in the Ten Commandments. And today we're at the tenth one. So if you're getting sick of the Ten Commandments, you only got one more to put up with. And the the um, uh, So it's at Exodus 20.17, so I'll read that and it'll be on the screen. But have your Bibles handy as well. The Tenth Commandment reads like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This, this is the one commandment that explicitly targets the heart. Now, as we've gone through the other nine commandments, we've also addressed the heart behind the, the commandments that, that those entailed, but, but this is the one that just goes right for the heart, and it's all about your desire. And so that's where God chose to, to end his list of commandments. And, and uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, first of all, the problem with, with coveting. And then we're going to talk about why is coveting considered idolatry? And then how do we overcome coveting? And then finally, we'll, we'll be talking about how can we be content? How can we be content? So first of all, the problem with coveting. What is the problem with coveting? Well, cove, coveting is desiring. It's wanting or craving something. The commandment does not just say, do not covet, because you need to know what not to covet. Because some of the, uh, the uses of covet is, is good. It's a good desire. So what makes it a good desire or a bad desire is whether, whether we desire something good or right or whether we desire something wrong or the wrong way. So he says, um, well, an example of a good desire is in Psalm 19.10, it says God's law, God's rule, God's word are to be desired or coveted more than much fine gold. And then Psalm 68 10 uh, speaks of God's 6816 speaks of God desiring or coveting Mount Zion as his dwelling place. 
So God is saying you shall not covet or desire to have what belongs to someone else in this commandment. Um, he says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, he could be talking about just the, the, the physical house, but, but the, the word can also refer to family. So um, people in the ancient Near East coveted the successes of the family next door just as families do today. Don't covet their house or their spouse, he says. Do not covet their house or their spouse. So why can't we live in a house like theirs? And why can't my husband be, husband be more like her husband? And why can't my wife be more like his wife? Why can't I have a housekeeper like they have? Don't, don't covet your neighbor's male or female servant. Don't even think of coveting your neighbor's ox or donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. Now, if any of you have coveted your neighbor's ox or donkey, it's time to come clean. <laughs> so just, just come on, confess it out. You may be coveting their house, your neighbor's family, your neighbor's kitchen, their shop, their, um, their boat, their motorcycle, their bank account, their clothing, their job, their car, their vacations, their church. Do not cover your neighbor's, your neighbor's church. Their way of life in general. I wonder how much coveting of wealth and stuff is in Camus. I wonder how much of that goes on here. You think? Some? Little? A lot? Like, should they have a sign? Welcome to Camus. We covet our neighbor's stuff. It's pretty widespread. It's, it's universal. It's worldwide. It's not, not just Camus. There is a difference between admiring good things people have, have and coveting them. Uh, sometimes it's a very thin line, but, but there, there can be a difference in that. Um, you might admire their family or their home or their ox. You might even think without being covetous, that's a mighty fine yard my neighbor has. I think I should tidy up my yard a bit. Or you might think um, the way they handled their children's misbehavior was wise. I can, I can learn from that. Or, hey, that was a really nice grill my neighbor had. I, I might look into getting one like it. But much of our coveting is not just admiring. It's it, what makes coveting wrong, what makes desiring wrong, what makes it sinful coveting is when you believe you must have that thing or this relationship to be content. I cannot be content until I have this thing. And you can also, um, the problem is also when you're sad that you don't have it and your neighbor does, and when you feel you must have it to keep up with your neighbor's status. Now, Israel is a nation fell to coveting when they said we want to be like the, the, the other nations we want to be like like them they've, they've got all this stuff and we don't get to do this stuff and they've got a king we don't have a king so they coveted uh, their their uh, neighbor nations kings and they got king saul who didn't turn out to work very well for them so you got to be careful what you covet because if you love it and covet it you might end up with it and it can uh, saul of course did increasingly crazy things and, and was not good for the nation I wonder if we don't think covetousness in that word in the New Testament never refers to a good desire. It's always bad desire. I wonder if we think covetousness is not that big of a sin. It's not that big of a deal. Um, it, actually, in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says it is one of the sins God gives those over to who, who reject him. 
he says, a mind given over to covetousness is a debased mind. So it says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and they're full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit. So, so it, it is bad. Covetousness is not a good thing. But isn't it a hidden sin? It's not really hurting anyone, is it? I mean, it might hurt the person who's coveting because they, they really want something badly. They don't get it. So um, um, is it really that bad? Well, God, even if it doesn't come out in some way, God sees your covetous, discontented heart, and he knows that that's what you're doing. He sees that you aren't glad that God's blessing on, on your neighbor. That amounts to lo- not loving your neighbor and not not thinking well of God because you're thinking, God, you're not fair, you're not good, you're not just for him or her to have that, and I don't. But often coveting does work itself out outwardly, and we see this in James chapter 4. James says this, What causes the quarrels and um, the, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So coveting is the root of many conflicts, even murders and wars. You desire what others have, so you take it by stealth, force, or even murder. You covet what others are or have out of envy or jealousy, and you cannot obtain it. You can't be like them. And you build up resentment in your, in your envy and jealousy, and you fight and quarrel. You don't trust God to provide, so you don't ask him. Or even if you do ask God, you don't receive it because you ask with self-serving motives to spend it on your self-centered passions. So what is the root cause of coveting? Where does it come from? Why, why is it so easy for us to go there? Why, why do our, our hearts kind of default go to coveting so easily? And we have to so be diligent not to. Well, it's because covetousness is idolatry. And our hearts are ever prone to trusting and treasuring things in the place of God. So why is coveting idolatry? Why do, why do we say that? Well, it says it in the Bible. So we got a couple of verses to see this. In Colossians 3, 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or in Ephesians 5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So uh, God designed us to delight in him and to desire him above all else and to be devoted to him, to depend upon him. But what our hearts do is to delight in things and people more than God. They desire things more than God, and they are devoted to people more than God, and they depend on things more than God and people more than God. So riches, relationships, and possessions give us a false sense of security, satisfaction, and significance. They, in other words, they take God's place because God is to be our, our satisfaction, our security, and our significance. But things become our gods. They make us feel like we are God. And that reminds me of what happened in Eden. Once upon a time, there was a, a man and a woman, 
They were in a garden. They were content. They had everything they needed, and they were happy. Then a snake came along and said, you deserve better than that. God is keeping stuff back from you. So the woman who listened to the snake sees that the tree is good for food and that it's a beautiful thing to see and that it is desired to to make one wise. There was the problem. She could be like God, determining good and evil for herself. So eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't fair for God to have superior wisdom and to keep this to himself. She, she wanted this. She coveted God's superior knowledge. She coveted his sovereignty over good and evil, and she must have some of this produce to produce this in her. Now, to desire food wasn't wrong. To delight in the beauty wasn't wrong. So to, that, the, that the tree looked like the food was good, it was delicious looking, um, that it was beautiful wasn't wrong to desire that. To want wisdom wasn't wrong, but to desire them for sinful motives out of distrust of God and on her own terms in violation of God's word was wrong. So coveting is idolatry because it trusts and treasures created things rather than or more than God. Coveting what is not Yours, setting your affections on earthly things rather than trusting and taking God at his word makes those things God in the place of God. So, in other words, the 10th commandment takes us, circles back all the way around and takes us all back to the first. The 10th commandment brings us all the way back to the first commandment because the first commandment said, you shall have no other gods before me, and coveting makes other things God before God. So, how do we overcome it? How do we overcome coveting? Glad you asked. In in Ephesians 5.3, one thing we need to do is just be absolutely sure that it has no place in our lives. So Ephesians 5.3 says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. as is proper among saints. So, Wow. We might agree that sexual immorality and impurity have no place among professing Christians, but Paul places covetousness right alongside these as sins which should not even exist among us. But it does, so how do we get rid of it? Well, there's the Buddhist solution. In the Buddhist worldview, our problem is that we have any craving and desire at all. So uh, there are four noble truths in Buddhism. So here's your Buddhism lecture for the morning. The four noble truths are this. Life is suffering, number one. Suffering is caused by craving and desiring. That's number two. Thirdly, nirvana, that's kind of like, sort of like heaven, is, is reached and suffering is ended when we stop craving and fourthly, the way to liberation from craving is by following the, the Noble Eightfold Path. And basically, the Noble Eightfold Path is that by restraining yourself, by cultivating discipline and practicing mindfulness and meditation, people can attain nirvana and stop craving and stop clinging to things and, and building up bad karma and being reborn again, reincarnated again and again and again. You get out of that cycle and get to nirvana if you, quit, if you quit craving. Just stop desiring at all. Well, that's not the Christian solution. 
our problem is not that we desire things or desire at all. Our problem is that we either desire the wrong things or desire good things in the wrong way. So you've heard this quote before. Many of you, C.S. Lewis famously said this. The problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, we want fleeting worldly pleasures rather, rather than God-centered, life-giving pleasures. So we, we need to desire more of what God has for us, not desire less. Paul says that if we have been raised with Christ, we are to set our minds on things above, where Christ is, not on things of earth. For we have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. In other words, you need to regularly reset your mind on who you are in Christ, that you have died and been raised with him, that your life is not defined by the things of this world, because Christ is your life, because Christ is your life, you, you, you can and must kill covetousness. You can't have competing desires. You can't covet things of this world as if they're, as if they're Christ, as if they're God, and have your life be Christ. So that's what he says in, in Colossians 3.5. We've already seen this verse, but, but now to focus on what it says to do with it, put it, put it to death, put to death, kill, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Show no mercy. Just kill it. Now, while I was typing these notes, eBay was kind of sending me an email saying, the number one item in the, that the world is buying today, you need to, to get this. Wow, okay, if it's the number one item the world's buying, if the world's getting this, I guess I better get it. What is it? And they're uh, Stuart Weitzman black patent leather shoes for 550 bucks. <laughs> All right, so I've got to add that to my list. The next day, eBay kindly informed me that another item is the bestseller, and another item, and I'm, I'm getting behind, falling behind in, in eBay's recommendations and their sympathy for my lacking of things. Not only are we to kill coveting, not only are we to kill it, but we are to learn to be content. So this is really the key. How can we be content? How can you be content? Well, we must learn it. What is contentment? Contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. It's the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. Contentment is not... Passive resignation, in which you just give up hoping for, or desiring for better circumstances. You just resign yourself to a bad situation. Contentment is not fatalism, where you just learn, you you know it's not worth trying to work for positive change. That's not contentment. So what is contentment? Well, contentment is the inward, gracious, not bitter quiet spirit, not in anxiety, not loud and complaining, that joyfully, confidently in God, not depressed, rests or trusts in God's providence. God is upholding and governing all things. He, purposely, he is purposely involved in details. That's what God's providence is. 
And so Paul tells us that he learned the secret of contentment in Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. He says, not that I'm speaking from being in need. So he says, uh, thank you for the donation, Philippians. But I, the reason I'm grateful is not because I, I coveted your money. So he's, he's taking time to explain why he was so glad that they gave to him. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So how did Paul learn to be content in every circumstance? Well, he trusted in God's providence. And again, God's providence is God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he cooperates with them in every action, directing them to fulfill his purposes. Or as we said earlier, God's providence is God upholding and governing all things. He is purposely involved in in the details of everything. So, Paul also trusted in God's character. He trusted in God's providence, and he trusted in God's character, because sometimes God's providence includes hard things. So, can I trust God when he works tough, hard, bad things in my life? Can I trust him? Well, Paul did, because he knew God's character. He knew God is wise. He knew God is good. His circumstances were not just good or bad luck. They were directed by God's wise and good providence. So because of this, when he experienced times of abundance, when he had times of plenty, he knew that what he had was from God's kind provision and not because he was not just from himself, from his own efforts merely. It was not ultimately because of of Paul's power or wisdom or skill that he had plenty. With this conviction, he avoided being proud and presumptuous He gave thanks to God for his provision, and he did not fall into the snare of trusting himself or his wealth. When he was in hunger or need, he learned to trust God's providence so as not to despair and fear and have hard thoughts about God. So he said, I've learned a secret. Paul had mastered the art of being hungry without murmuring, the art of being full without boasting, the art of suffering without without being impatient, the art of abounding without setting his affection on, on worldly things. Now, we may think that facing hunger and being in need is harder than to handle than having an abundance of plenty. Like, yeah, hey, I could give me the abundance. I'll, I'll, I'll risk that. I'll figure out how to handle being full and having a lot of stuff. Well, when we have plenty, we have an abundance of things. We, feel, we might feel little or no need of, of the Lord. So it's actually more dangerous to our our walk with God, to our relationship with God, to feel self-sufficient, to not depend upon him. So because of this hazard, uh, John Calvin said, um, knowing how to handle have, having plenty and still be godly requires more grace than enduring poverty. So it actually requires more grace to handle being wealthy and, and having lots of stuff than it does to be poor and have less stuff. Charles Spurgeon pastor of the last century in England said how many Christians have I seen glorifying God in sickness and poverty when they have come down in the world when they've, when they've sunken down in their circumstances and how often have I seen other Christians dishonoring God when they have grown rich or when they have risen to a position of influence among their fellow men 
these two lessons, grace alone, can fully teach us. So we need to learn to be content because what comes natural for us is, have you noticed? Discontent. It's so much easier for us to go to discontentment than to, than to contentment. So we, we need to learn it. So contentment has to be cultivated. And the contentment Paul is talking about only grows from grace in Christ. Even though it comes by grace, it still must be intentionally cultivated and developed. It's got to be learned. So you need to, to cultivate it. Now for the, the Stoic or the Buddhist, the person who uh, says just don't have any desires, emotional det- detachment is essential in order to be content. What a stark difference for the Christian. Instead of achieving contentment through being strong in reason or willpower, the Christian learns contentment by being weak enough to be strengthened by grace. The Christian learns contentment by, by being weak enough to be, strength, be strengthened by grace. That's why Paul says in, in this familiar verse for many of us, Philippians 4.13, for many people it's their life verse, so they quote it a lot. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things Paul is talking about here is being content in whatever circumstance he is in, whether plenty or hunger or abundance or need. This is not a blanket promise that you can do anything if you, if you, that you trust Christ for. Um, whether it's a test at school or sporting events or um, a business deal or some other challenge you're facing. I hear people, I've heard people a lot claim this verse for all kinds of things. I don't think I've ever heard anybody claim it for the context that it's in. I've never heard anybody say, hey, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, whether I have plenty or, or little. But that's what he's saying it for. That's what Paul had in mind when he said this. That's why the Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book with the title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The rare jewel of Christian contentment, because it is so rare that we experience contentment. Contentment is rare because the only way to have it consistently is by relying on Christ to strengthen you. You cannot do it on your own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes that he was given what he called a thorn in the flesh. A lot of people have speculated on what that was, but whatever it was, Paul says it was a messenger of Satan sent to, to harass him. You think, Paul, you're great at casting out demons. If that's demonic, just cast it. But it wasn't going away. He says that he prayed to God three times to keep him from, uh, to, to take this away. And he said it was sent to harass him to keep him from becoming conceited. So God said to Paul, My answer to you is my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And Paul continues in Second Corinthians 12.10. All right, well, for the sake of Christ then, if, that's how God, if God sees it good for me to have this thorn, then for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... And I'm strong. So this is how Paul interpreted his circumstances, how he could possibly be contented in suffering, persecution, calamities. This is a powerful illustration of how, how we can learn to be content in hard circumstances by trusting and resting in God's providence. 
for God to use even a messenger of Satan to accomplish his good purpose in Paul, rather, rather than this being in conflict with God's grace, it's actually in cooperation with God's grace to perfect the work of God's power in Paul's weakness. So what are you facing in which you need to learn to be content? Broken relationships? False accusations? Death of a loved one? All the crazy things going on in our society, social and governmental upheavals? Being single when you want to be married. Being married when you want to be single. You hate your job. You lost your job. Chronic chronic sickness. Hey, that reminds me of something. Um, I'm still in elementary school in learning contentment with having part having Parkinson's. In fact, I'm probably more like in kindergarten. As it increasingly interferes with my physical functionality, my family life, and my service to you, it's not something I enjoy. As I feel it increasingly constricting my life, learning to be content, man, I'm on a steep learning curve. Learning to be content with this thorn in my flesh is definitely not going to happen on my own strength. I, I'm, I'd love to test out or switch majors, but so far, I'm still in this course. But this leads me to ask, does being content mean we never lament? Does being content mean we never lament? There's a difference between pouring out your complaints to God and complaining about God. The Apostle Peter says we, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt us. How do we do that? Casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So one, so one way we, we approach contentment and and struggling with our inner frustrations is just keep pouring out your anxieties on God. That's what he says to do. Take them and just keep launching them to God because he cares for us. So, yeah, God, take it. God, take it. God, take it. Moment by moment, hour by hour. Take it, take it. Jesus was the most contented man who ever lived. But he prayed... Father, take this cup of suffering, of sin-bearing suffering away. He, this is what he came to do. He knew this is what he came to do. He, he knew it was the Father's will, and he was all about doing the Father's will. But he still, in his human recoiling at the suffering and the evil that was coming upon him, he still said, God, take this cup away. And as, as he was suffering on the cross, my God... Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus despised the shame of the cross, although he knew joy was coming. So being content for Jesus didn't mean 
that he didn't experience anguish and shame. And even though Paul had learned how to be content in whatever circumstances he was in, he said there were times he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. This is the one who said, rejoice all the time, give thanks in everything. I was so burdened, I, I despaired of life itself. It's, it's part of the mix that we live in. He said he was sorrowful but always rejoicing. That's the normal Christian life. We have sorrow and, and lots of joy. And we have lots of sorrow and we have lots of joy. He said he experienced daily pressure of anxiety for the churches he cared for. So being content doesn't mean that you never have sorrow or grief or anxiety or that you're always peaceful and happy and calm. We still live in a fallen world. It means that your heart is anchored and animated by satisfaction in God. Trust in God and his providence. Though you still experience disruptions to contentment, your heart is continually drawn back to it by God's grace. Also, does being content in all circumstances mean you never try to improve hard circumstances when you can? Well, of course not. If you take that to the extreme, that would mean you never clean your house. Maybe some of you already don't clean your house. I don't know. Um, you, you never take a shower or a bath. You never, never fix your car or you never go the, to the doctor when you're sick. No, being content means you do what you can to improve or change your circumstances, but not out of covetousness, self-serving or worldly ambition, or out of lack of trust in God. It means trusting God and being satisfied in Him even when you are not able to change your circumstances. So you don't spend too much money on and heap up consumer debt to have all the toys and luxuries you want. You make decisions concerning your family, your education, your work, your health, your relationships, and your use of time and your finances based on trust in God and what pleases and prioritizes Him. It means keeping His word and prayer central to your daily rhythms and worshiping and sharing life with your church family. In other words, you've got to make it a way of life. We need that constant input of God's grace and strength to be content. And because so many issues related to covetousness and contentment involve finances, I'm going to close with a couple of passages that relate to our fin our finances to contentment. And one of those is 1 Timothy 6, 6-8, where Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. We gain far more in our satisfaction in God by pursuing godliness with contentment than in pursuing money and what it can buy. But is, I mean, is Paul for real? I mean, can, are you genuinely, like, deeply thankful for food and clothing? That's a good test. I mean, do you thank God every day for food and clothing? He says that should be, we should be content with that. Now, God is so good, he often gives us more than just food and clothing. Like, we get to live in houses and apartments and things like that most of the time. Some of us are homeless. He gives us cars. He gives us other things. But, but um, it's a good test. I'm really grateful to God for what, what he has provided. If I just had a little bit more, I would be content. If I just had a little bit more, I would be content. 
So they, uh, they stu- uh, Boston College conducted a study. Researchers talked with people whose fortunes exceeded $25 million. The respondents turn out to be generally dissatisfied people whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. They are frequently dissatisfied even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, they would require on average one quarter more wealth than they currently possess. So that equates to $31.5 million. So yeah, if I just, I've, I've got $25 million, but if I just had $31.5 million, I would be doing well. So I don't know how many of you that hits, but, but we all probably feel like if I just had a raise, if I just had a little bit more or this much more, I would be content. And it's, we're in constant pursuit of something that we never arrive at. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money, in other words, covetousness. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're content with what you have, you will, if you're not content with what you have, you will love money. You will want stuff that money can buy. If you are satisfied in God, his promise that he will never leave you or forsake you will be more valuable to you than money and what it can buy. The reason he will never leave us or forsake us is that he sent his son to die on the cross and be raised from the dead to remove the result of our refusal to be content in him. So what was the result of our refusal to be content in him? Death. Eternal separation from him. Because we've said, God, I I will not accept what you've given to me. I I need something better. I need something more. I I don't trust you. That happened in the garden, and that, that's where we've lived ever since, under the bondage of contentment. But God accomplishes and applies the redemption for people who have sought contentment in something other than him. We've all turned aside and served the creation rather than the creator. Instead of leaving us hungry and hurting and in our rebellion, God acts. He pursues us. He comes after us. And, and to what end? Why does he come after us? So that through this gracious rescue of the death and resurrection of, of his son, we might trust in and delight in his all-surpassing supremacy and sufficiency. Through the gospel, God makes himself our treasure. In other words, God makes us content in him. We have a meal that we celebrate every Sunday where we're declaring, I, I have no hope for contentment. I have no hope for eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. And he accomplished that by taking my place, by entering into my humanity. He, he left the perfect fellowship. He was totally content, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, completely content with one another. And he would have been just to leave us to our discontentedness, but because he is a loving and good God, He chose to enter into our discontented world and take upon himself the burden and penalty of our discontentedness. So Jesus Christ took on flesh, became a a man. He died on the cross, absorbing God's wrath against us, absorbing our hell 
so that we could have his righteousness and we could have heaven and, be, and live forever with him. If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus has sufficiently provided for you and effectively provided for you eternal life and everlasting contentedness in him, with him, and you want to enjoy that meal with him one day in full, then this meal is for you. If you haven't yet come to that faith in Christ, then hold off taking this meal until you come to faith in Jesus because this meal is declaring, I believe that. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have some more worship music, and there will be people here to pray for you as well. If you have any prayer needs, you can pray like right during the service with someone. And otherwise, you go up, you take the, the bread, dip it in the cup, and prepare our hearts together for receiving this communion meal. I'll pray for us to do that.